So Why I'm Writing a Novel is the show where you join me, Oliver Brackenbury, on the journey of writing my next novel, from first ideas all the way to publication and promotion. In this one-man reality show, I'll share with you my ever-evolving thoughts and feelings on how I write, being a writer, and everything that entails at each stage of the process. I'll also answer listener questions and, sometimes, interview special guests. If you're the kind of person who likes to learn how things are made and get to know the people making them, then this is the show for you. I've had the good luck to have known Ryan North since 1996. It's possible you've never heard of him, it's possible, but let me just say I'm glad to still have him in my life right now in 2022. I was lucky enough to see the earliest prototype of his webcomic, Dinosaur Comics, when it was briefly looking like it would feature astronauts, and I'm lucky enough to be interviewing him today, on the cusp of the release of his latest funny popular science book, How to Take Over the World, Practical Schemes and Scientific Solutions for the Aspiring Supervillain. In the space between those two points, Ryan has written a vast array of works, including his graphic novel adaptation of Kurt Vonnegut's Slaughterhouse-Five, his wonderful revamp of obscure Marvel superhero Squirrel Girl, a pair of choosable path adventure books based on Shakespearean plays, and honestly, too much more to list it all here. If you're not already familiar with his work, I strongly suggest flipping through the bibliography section of his Wikipedia page or checking out his author site at ryannorth.ca. Yes, he's Canadian. So, without further ado, let's go chat to a guy who once pulled an amazing prank on me that expertly took advantage of my love of salting crackers. And here we are with Ryan North. Hey, Ryan. Hi, Oliver. Nice to see you here in the uh, New York studio on First Avenue, the most famous <laughs> avenue in New York. <laughs> yes, we're definitely in the same room in a big we're, city. It's great. In America. It. Yes, America, the, the, the country that exists, mm-hmm. uh, I believe is what it's, <laughs> what it's known for. Anyway, holy crap, good start. Um, so first off, uh, before we talk about the new book, I just want to ask you um, an early career question. So right near the beginning when you were just starting to write things beyond dinosaur comics uh right did it take the editors you worked with like a minute to get used to your fondness for footnotes crammed with extra facts and funnies because i just think about like trying to manage word count and then writer being like yeah yeah i added 700 words to the bottom of this one page like (laughs) yeah um i will tell you that um how to take over the world my new book first draft had I believe it was 365 footnotes. And my editor was like, this is simply too many footnotes. <laughs> some of this stuff <laughs> belongs in the text. Some of this, yeah, some of this belongs in the text. Some of this could be a sidebar. Some of this could honestly be cut. And you need to get it down to 50 footnotes at most. And I turned it around on her because I got it down to 110, I think, something in that range. And I was like, you know, in our previous book, How to Take Over or How to Admit Everything, uh, we had 130 footnotes, and this is lower than that. So really, the word hero gets thrown around a lot these days, but I feel like I'm the hero here. <laughs> and she was like, okay, fair enough. We'll 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 deal with this. And I, I wrote something like, please forgive Ryan his footnotes. But this is the thing. I like, it's not like I'm enamored with footnotes. What I'm enamored with is the idea of uh, interesting information and interesting asides. And a footnote is a great place to put that into the text. Like when you're researching a subject, you usually find out something really cool about it. And sometimes the really cool stuff doesn't quite fit in with the point you're making. And I like it when a book feels like you're having a really interesting conversation with someone and they're like, oh, and this is a neat thing about that. So it's not the greatest thing to have 365 footnotes in your book, (laughs) I will concede. But I never put out a book like that because my editors are good 
And I love editors because their job is to make you sound better than you are. And in this case, my wonderful editor, Courtney Young, was like, this is too many footnotes. You need to fix this in yourself and in your manuscript. <laughs> right. And, and <laughs> in yourself. And yeah, and I, I wonder, was it, um, so that was with the new one. How was it though early on when you were working on, say, like narrative stuff, like Adventure Time, the Adventure Time comics? And you were like, I want to put more jokes in the margins. Uh, yeah. Can see that being a little harder sell than additional facts in a fun fact book. Um, I don't think it was actually a hard sell. Huh. My justification for it, which I was never asked for, was that uh, buying comics in print is a not inexpensive hobby. And I liked the idea that in this comedy book that we were literally cramming jokes into the margins. Like, <laughs> we're, we're giving you your money's worth here because there's a little joke beneath every page. And when I did Kid Constantine for DC, they were like, oh, can we have the little jokes in the bottom of the page? And I was like, sure, of course we can. And then we realized the book would be five by nine and there would be a lot of room for jokes at the bottom of the page. And so we had to cut it, which was I was very happy with because I had not written any jokes at the bottom of the page. <laughs> that was a job for future Ryan. So it was a very easy cut to make. The stuff you've never written is always easiest stuff to cut. Yeah, no, yeah. <laughs> you don't even have to press delete. Um, but uh, <laughs> yeah, well, and also I kind of like that, you know, it's become part of your voice. Like I like the transition from like, I guess the alt text on Dinosaur Comics was probably the, the original of that, right? Mm -hmm. um, but uh, in terms of your your you know, writing for uh, an audience. But yeah, then over time, I think it feels like it led the... Um, like it put the foundation there for you to do things like your choose your own adventure, uh, you know, comics and then books and stuff like that. It's like, okay, this is a guy who likes to mess with format. Yeah, I do like to mess with format. And I feel like, honestly, that is one of the things that I find most interesting about comics in general and the uh, nonlinear second person narration of choosable path adventures, which I use that phrase because choose your own adventure is owned a trademark by ChooseCo and they are a not unlitigious company. Which is why I never say choose your own adventure. I say yes, choose your path me, adventure. Uh, Chico, don't, uh, don't come for Ryan. He's got a dog he needs to keep feeding. Yeah, Chomsky needs his food. But yeah, I feel like every time I read a comic by certain authors, I can see something done with a form that I haven't seen done before. Uh, Jason Sheik is a great example. I love him. He's a brilliant man. And he will do stuff in comics that, to my knowledge, has not been done. It's little, little, little comic tricks that are really cool. And that is an incredibly huge bar to cross and he does it regularly and other people do it regularly too because it's a young medium that is not fully explored like it's it's very hard to point to a novel and say this has done something with the printed word that i haven't seen done before that has not been done before it's it can happen but it's much more rare but with comics you can do it it's the same with video games i think of a great video game it's usually something that is doing something that has not been done before in video games. That's an, that's routine for great video games, but it is a wildly unsustainable bar. <laughs> once, once the medium <laughs> matures, we're not going to be doing that. We'll have the technology and we'll have it more fully explored. The same with the choosable path adventures. These are normally books written for a juvenile audience. And so when you start to write one for adults, like I was doing, there's some neat stuff you can do that I hadn't seen done before. There's a bit in uh, both books where you can unlock... A playable character that's hidden in the text and the way you do that is you can't change the state of the book but you can change the state of the reader and so you tell them when they find a good ending or secret ending to say okay when you choose a character instead of choosing one of the two options uh, take those options add them together divide by two take the square root etc etc and turn to that page instead and so now when they get to the choose your character page they have a new there's a hidden option it's there on the page but it's invisible that lets them unlock this third character and this is something that you can do with the form that you couldn't probably you probably could do it with kids maybe just no one had done it before but it's stuff like that where the the form 
the full potential of the form is not yet known. And I feel like that is a very uh, special and unique and privileged position to be in when you're working with a medium where you can say, okay, I want to tell the story. I want to play with these characters. But I also, best case scenario, want to do something that hasn't been done before this medium. <laughs> and that's, that's exciting. That's fun. And I imagine podcasting is also a young form, so... <laughs> Yeah, no, I'm uh, I'm trying over here. I mean, that's why, why uh, like I messed around with the um, story consultation episodes I did recently, where I found a couple of brave authors who let me do a story, like edit basically out of their short stories, works in, works in progress, and then we just discussed it and like oh, editing notes like live. You know, usually mm -hmm. editing is a very private thing, and understandably, people are very like, oh, geez, you know, I don't want people to hear about how I messed up a comma or whatever the heck. So I have a, a good editing story. I love to share an editing story. Um, the very first issue of Squirrel Girl. In the final issue, she meets Craven the Hunter, and she thinks, how can I defeat this guy? She thinks, maybe I'll put squirrels down his pants, or I'll do stuff with squirrels. And eventually, she uh, realizes what his core problem is and helps him, and that helps save the day. But in the first draft, uh, she just stuck squirrels down his pants, and that, that beat him, and that's how she won. And my editor, Will Moss, said, you know, I always saw Doreen Green, Squirrel Girl, as someone who helps people with their problems. And it was like seeing the answer key at the back of the book. And I was like, yes, of course, absolutely. Destroy this draft. I'm sending you a new one. It's going to be so much better. And that characteristic of her being empathic and helping people define the character and define the 58-issue run that we did. And that came entirely from an editor seeing what I'd written and being like, I think we can make this better. And I think that's really interesting. Like, I don't want to, especially in a collaborative medium, I don't want to stand there and say everything on the page is mine and it's my brilliant idea and I had no help. Like, that, that's a lie. Of course, but also that's fascinating because that casts a new light on the last question uh, or next to last question I want to ask you that we discussed a little bit before recording. Sure. Uh, so we'll we'll get there when we get there. That's what we call a teaser, folks, because um, people don't know what a teaser is. And uh, <laughs> isn't it called foreshadowing? I guess teasers yeah, are some class of foreshadowing. Yeah. All right. Well, there you go. We just edited my own uh, comment, so I'm into it. Um, <laughs> I can punch that up, fix it in post. Yeah, we'll fix it in post. All right, let's bring it back to the book at hand. Would you mind giving us the quickie like elevator pitch for your new book and then follow that up with the aha moment that made you realize you wanted to write it? Yeah, that, that, that's a good question. So my new book is called How to Take Over the World, Practical Schemes and Scientific Solutions for the Aspiring Supervillain. And uh, what it is is a collection of plots and schemes and machinations from comic books, like classic supervillain schemes of digging to the Earth's core to hold it hostage and living forever and things like that. And all the uh, logistics and science and technology that you need to pull them off here in the real world. What I like about it is it's sort of the spiritual successor to my last book, How to Invent Everything, where you had this nonfiction core, but it's wrapped in this fictional candy coating. So for How to Invent Everything, the, the, the fiction was... It's a repair guide for a time machine that you've taken a ride in and it's broken down in the past and now you're trying to, to fix it. And the book is saying time machines are too complicated. It's actually easier to teach you how to rebuild civilization from scratch. So here's how you do that. And so the, the fictional premise of this book is that I've, I've been writing comics for Marvel and DC, which is true. And a good story has the heroes succeeding at the very last minute, which is true. And the fictional part is, uh, so basically what I've been doing is coming up with increasingly credible world domination schemes that fail only because I've been writing them to fail, and actually they would work perfectly, so here's how you do that. I just pulled these out of a drawer when the, the truth is it took me a long time to research them and figure out all the logistics and stuff. But you're using this idea of world domination as the fictional lens to view the nonfiction of the interesting science and technology and history of what we can do right now and the, the wild stuff we could do if we put our minds to it 
and had $56 billion <laughs> to apply to the problem. <laughs> so the, the moment of Genesis, um, it wasn't really sort of an aha moment. For How to Met Everything, it was a book that I had wanted to read for decades, and no one had written it. So I said, fine, I'll do it myself. And it was a lot of work. <laughs> I would have much preferred <laughs> just reading it. Uh, for this book, it was more me thinking, what is that fictional candy coating that I could have fun with? And what is, what is a fun premise that we could explore seriously? Like, what is an outrageous premise that then we could say, now here's the actual science and technology behind it. And uh, world domination, like being a, a Dr. Doom, a Lex Luthor type character, felt like, yeah, that feels like a really fun book to write. And there's some there's an element of like chaos and irresponsibility to it that I enjoy. Um, when I was doing a talk for How to Make Everything, one of the things I would say was, oh yeah, this is, if this book went back in time, it would be the most dangerous book in history. And then I would show us the slide of a book I saw at a bookstore. And then I'd say this is actually the second most dangerous book because this book exists. And that book was called How Hitler Could Have Won World War II. <laughs> <laughs> and I just, I love the idea of a book on someone's shelf where the spine says how to take over the world. <laughs> that's just, <laughs> that's great. That's a book I want on my shelf. So I, I, I wrote that book. I'm going to place it beside other books I've purchased, um, including Is Eating People Wrong? <laughs> well, is Which it? is a book about law. It's a book about law and talking oh. about, like, in certain situations, cannibalism is fine. Like, if in a plane crash situation, no one gets charged with cannibalism. But I just, I have it in my guest room. So when COVID's over, people can come and they'll just see a book, Is Eating People Wrong? next to a book called Contingency Cannibalism. <laughs> I appreciate the effort you put into this because it's very easy to see like a kind of a kitsch store selling just the spines. And you're oh, like, yeah, no, no, no I I'm going to read books and write books <laughs> to yeah, go no, with these I, 20 spines. It, 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 blows, it makes me so angry when you see a book. I found I complain about this. I found out there's a term for it. They're white elephant books. They're books that exist only to be given as gifts. And they're not meant to be read. And like that... The, the thing with How to Invent Everything was I wanted this book to, to fulfill the fictional premise of, yeah, it's a repair guide for time machine that teaches you how to rebuild civilization from scratch. But it critically also had to be a viable guide to rebuild civilization from scratch. Or else, what are we doing here? Like, why, why, would, it, why would you even bother reading this or writing this? And so the fun of, of How to Take Over the World is that these schemes will work. Like, <laughs> there's a lot of thought and effort put in them. They're super expensive, but they're... There are things that will work, and in, some, in one case has already worked, to actually do these crazy, worlds-changing, villainous plots in the real actually, world. Actually, I just thought of something, because I suppose aside from the one that's already been done, which I don't know if I should ask you which one that is, because that feels like spoiler territory, but um, have you not perhaps pre-thwarted everything in the book by publishing the book so that now people can see those schemes and go, oh, you know, and they'll know how to stop them if uh, some of the, the early stages of any of them start you know, showing signs? Um, I don't think so, because a lot of them you could begin in secret. Uh, one of them you could very easily do in secret. And actually, there's one scheme where I was like, this seems like maybe I should <laughs> make it super clear that you shouldn't do this because it would be really bad. But mm -hmm. I also feel like, you know, hiding that if I can, if I, if I, a simple comic book writer can come up with this, then surely there are others of means who can see it too. And I don't think the answer is to hide it and hope they never do it. I think the answer is to show it and be like, here's some stuff. Let's learn about it. It's interesting. And let's make sure that nobody does this crazy stuff. But I don't want to make that book sound dangerous. I don't think it's a dangerous yeah, book. Yeah, no, it super isn't. Like, I think even if Jeff Bezos read it and was like, intriguing. Um, I mean, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, think we'd, I think we'd be okay. I think we'd be all right. I mean, um, there's, a, there's a chapter on immortality, and there are so many tech bros throwing money at, at life extension schemes because they don't want to die. So this is already happening.
Yeah, well, there's that too. Yeah. Exactly. exactly. Um, so, okay, for a popular science book like this, or your previous one, How to Invent Everything, the role research plays is pretty big compared to most other types of books, as are perhaps even some of the risks. Like, you know, how did you know when it was time to stop <laughs> research for How to Take Over the World? Um, I agree that normally it's hard. For How to Take Over the World, it was actually a bit easier because it's a book of, it's a prospectus of plots. <laughs> and so there are nine different schemes in the book. And so I could stop once I had a fair book amount of schemes. <laughs> and also, like, <laughs> yeah. there's only a certain number of supervillain plots that you can do in the real world. Because anything that relies on shrink rays or mind control beams, I can't reproduce here. Like, that's, that's comic book science. You have to have real life science in these books. But you're, I think the core of the question is, like, once you start learning and once you start thinking... Uh, you can never stop. You can just keep thinking of more and more things. Well, if you got 365 footnotes, you know what I mean? Like, it's that kind of thing of just feeling like, especially when you have a pre-made way of cramming in a little extra uh, via, say, footnotes. Yeah. Uh, it must, the temptation must be pretty strong. Like, Yeah, I think I'm all, whenever I'm writing, I'm also reading what I'm writing as a reader. And you're trying to be like, is this moving along quickly? Are we getting lost? Uh, there was one chapter that ended up becoming two chapters because it got so big. And it, that was, it was going to be a chapter about... Uh, secret bases and uh, starting your own country and I thought those could be one thing but they became two separate things so there's a lot of really interesting things to talk about secret bases and there's lots of really interesting things to talk about uh, taking over a country <laughs> to make it your own personal country and so in that case there's a moment where you're thinking oh no is this getting away from me like this chapter is now two chapters and what if it becomes five or six or seven I'll never stop but once you reach the decision of this, these two ideas should be separate I think it's just a matter of is this moving quickly is it interesting? And am I cutting out things that hurt me too much? Because if, I, if they're hurting me too much, I'll put them back in as footnotes or sidebars or a full separate chapter if it's that, that critically important. Mm -hmm. But it's it's a holistic process. I know that's an, that's an unsatisfying answer. If I do different things and I stop when it's good, but no, that's, that's a kind of the basic answer. of everything this I do. A, no, dude, the big part of this podcast is craft. So like how you did that thing is a perfect mm -hmm. answer. So I have a few sub-questions related to this. For yeah. example, how did you keep it all organized while you worked? Um, you know, did you use Scrivener? People like to recommend that. No, oh my God, Scrivener. <laughs> <laughs> I knew, I knew you'd say that. <laughs> I just, I wish people who like Scrivener had interests outside of Scrivener. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like it begins to eclipse their personality. Listen, I work in flat text files for this book. I worked, I started in flat text files. I switched over to Microsoft Word and all the chapters were independent. So it was very much like, here's this scheme, here's this scheme, here's this scheme. When I had a book length amount of schemes, I started to think, well, how could these be organized into a book? How do they fit together? Where do they, like a puzzle. And then should I write more chapters? Should I cut this chapter out? That sort of stuff. But there was not a lot of, I don't know, what do you call them in security? Your mind maps and your, yeah, your little yeah, charts yeah. and your little graphs. And, and like, oh, I can pull up my research. Well, I mean, I have a, I have a, directory in my computer that's labeled research <laughs> i can pull that yeah. up like i don't i for my and this is i'm sure everyone works differently but there are there's a certain type of writer who wants everything at their fingertips in one application and there's a certain type of more unix inspired writer who wants everything to do one job <laughs> and so <laughs> my writing i just want it to be full screen and have my writing on it and if i need to stop to do the research i have a keyboard combo called alt tab 
lets me bring over that directory and I can look at my research. Like I don't need it all in one colossal app. I just want small programs that do one thing. So I, this feels sorry, so that, brand. That, I forget what the question was. You mentioned Scrivener. I have the no, Scrivener. No, 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 that was it. Like, <laughs> I mean, was kind of, that was kind of, you, you kind of answered it anyway because I said, <laughs> I mentioned Scrivener and you just saw red. Uh, no, I, I said, how did you uh, keep it all organized while you worked? And you just answered my question. So great. Because um, uh, it's also very on brand because your you know, your comp side background comes into play there. I think mentioning Unix and stuff. Um, and just the way you think about it, like file directories. I, I'm guessing you don't really do anything like I'm a big notebook guy because I'm I'm garbage for not getting distracted by Twitter uh, and whatever mm-hmm. other fun stuff I have on my computer and I tried those apps that are like you know it shuts down the other things but you can always shut down the app <laughs> like if you're really determined you can always claw your way out of the box you put yourself in we, we can so, solve this you what we do is we go to your computer and mm-hmm. we take your min account and you let me use the computer oh, and gosh. I open up your host file and block those sites at the DNS level and then I change the admin password yeah but then I'm just gonna like call you until you unlock Twitter. <laughs> I block your calls. I end this oh, decades-long no. relationship, and yeah, eventually okay. you thank me. <laughs> you wake up at 3 in the morning. I'm just, like, at your window. Um, yeah. No, but, you know, I get it. Like, they can, they can be distractions. And yeah. I actually work in a very distracted way. Someone asked me once, like, what's your process like? And I was like, oh, man, if you if I, you look at me writing, it's I'll write for... 20 30 minutes and then i'll pause to look something up and while i'm looking something up i might check twitter and that might take five or ten minutes and over the course of a day i'm sure that adds up but i also have i am blessed with a deep sense of guilt when goofing off which acts as a uh throttle on that right like i can't i cannot lose an hour to social media because 10 minutes in, I'll be like, what the fuck am I doing? This is a waste of time, and I will feel bad about it. I'll want to get back to the stuff I actually enjoy doing, which is doing the writing. So I, I understand the idea for notebooks. I tried that at the start of this project and hated it because then I had a physical object that could be lost. So what I did is that when I'm reading a book and I want to take a note, I would just... Uh, take out my phone camera and take a picture of that page. I would pirate that page of the book. <laughs> and then in my camera roll, I would have a directory that I would fill in all these files. And then when it came to wanting to check my notes, I would flip through these pages of the books. And what I took the picture for wasn't highlighted, but I could usually tell, and it gave me context. And it meant that as I went through my notes, it took a bit longer, but I also remembered stuff from the book that helped what I was taking notes for. And so in a way, it felt like a hack, a cheat. Like I'm not taking notes, I'm just taking a a snapshot of a page. But for this book, yes, it slowed down the writing a little bit, but it, it made me think in a way that you don't think when you're reading your own notes of why am I reading this? What's the interesting thing? And in some cases, I look and be like, I don't know why I took a picture of this page. I have to reread it. And then I remember the thought that I had when I was taking that snapshot. So it's a very idiosyncratic use of that because anyone else would not get the same value out of those pictures because they wouldn't have the same thought processes. But for me, it meant that when I was reading, it could go quick and I could take the picture and move on. And when I was writing, it felt a little bit like spelunking or like recovering the data that was there. No, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. I mean, you remind me of two things. One is I know there's like smart notebooks out there that like formalize the process you just described sure. basically. Evernote, yeah. I know, right? Um, <laughs> but uh, it's like we, we found an app for taking a picture of the page and then everything you just described. Um, <laughs> uh, so, you know, it's just a way of, of getting, you know, some more software in there or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then also like, Myself, I, you know, I, I, yeah, it adds a little more work, but similarly, this is kind of thing with spelunking, as you say, back through your own writing and being like, okay, and like reiterating to yourself, why was I doing this? And obviously refining and editing as you go along, because I have mm. time. So like, I, I feel like the trade-off of the extra effort is worth it for sure to, to do the notebooking thing. But uh, of yeah. course, you got to figure out what works for each book and where your head is at 
you know, and, and yeah, fine. if it works for you, it's fine. For me, I feel like I always want to keep things as simple as possible. And I would, my goal is that in a hundred years, I can open up this directory and still be able to read all the files in it. And I don't expect Evernote will be around in a hundred years, but I think a basic file system with JPEG files, <laughs> a bunch mm-hmm. of dated JPEG files will still be legible. So it's, I mean, this is, we're talking about personal preference and I just, for everyone listening, there's no wrong answers here. You don't need to be as crazy as me and being like, these notes need to be in <laughs> popular standard file formats so that they'll be legible. It just, whatever you, whatever works, right? Oh yeah, yeah. No, that's, that's something I say many times on this podcast. That, like I was trying to be like, I'm not being prescriptive. I'm just sharing what I'm doing right now. And if yeah. you get something from that, great. And then I think everybody's writing process is just like a constantly modified Frankenstein's monster. You put, you tear bits off and put bits on as you move along. And, you know, yeah. As as it going. I mean, it's interesting because um, I do use notebooks sometimes when writing fiction because I will get tired of sitting at the computer at this empty document and be like, this sucks. I'm going to go downstairs and sit on my chest like I'm a little kid and just doodle in this book and write down ideas. And just changing where you are and the way you're writing can can help a lot. Like that has produced some really good stuff. It's also produced some pages filled with bad ideas. Oh, sure. But, I mean, that's, <laughs> but sometimes that's like, oh, this is great. And then I'll take a picture of that page and put it in a directory. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, of course. And also screen fatigue. I mean, good grief. Yeah. So, yeah, okay. Uh, how did you know when a fact was great for the book? Or not for this one, maybe another one yet to come. Or even it's something that's actually lacks broad appeal and only you would find it worthwhile. Yeah. Um, whenever I find a fact where I'm like, this is really cool, I need to use this, I'm actually deeply suspicious because mm-hmm. I feel like if I haven't encountered this before and it's really cool, maybe it's a lie. So I'll start <laughs> trying to like, collaborate this fact and see if it's actually something interesting um that came up more in how to invent everything than it did in how to take over the world because there it was it was less of interesting tidbit about this bit of historical technology and more what how could we actually do this so what do we need to accomplish this which is less of i'm looking at particular things and more i'm consuming a whole bunch of stuff trying to find some way to to pull off this plot so it was Again, it's a holistic process. It's it's writing those stuff you think is cool. Um, one point where that kind of uh, blew up on me was I was talking about for secret bases and you need to figure out how big your base is so that you can support the, your, your hench people inside of it. And that leads into, well, how much space does a human need to survive? And that leads into the biosphere experiment. And, yes, I really like the segment on that in the book. Yeah, um, so that... that biosphere segment began initially as a quick aside and i was like oh this is actually really interesting so that should be a footnote and then this footnote became too big i was like all right this is going to have to be actually a significant part of this chapter because there's some really cool stuff that happened when you put uh, four men and four women in a sealed container and then watch them for a year (laughs) to see what happened and watch their minds break and watch as they suffocated literally suffocated and starved and started turning on each other and that's just become something that, yeah, let's talk about this. Like, this is really neat. And this this has credible scientific value for you who is trying to build a isolated secret base that's self-sufficient and self-sustaining. So in that example, it became like, there's just too many cool facts here. I need to talk about this more. But also it legitimately supports what we're trying to do. So there's there's a reason to learn it, which is the whole point of the fictional premise is to motivate learning about the nonfiction because we have a goal at the end. Uh, which for me just just helps a lot both in the writing and the reading it's i love books that take a single subject and tell you everything you need to know about it 
or movies like the documentary Helvetica. It's like, here's an hour and a half. You'll go in, you'll know everything you need to know about Helvetica. You can check that box off. <laughs> Done. I have Helvetica covered. And I kind of wanted to treat each chapter in the book like that. Of like, here's all you need to know if you are going to dig to the Earth's core or have a secret base or have take over a country. Check. Got that. Done. <laughs> Never have to do it again. Yeah, got it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. All right, cool. Um, so final little sub-question, because mm -hmm. there is a file directory here for my questions. I just want to get that Perfect, across. love it. Uh, yeah, part part D of three. Um, do you ever worry in parts? No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> do you ever worry about your parts? Uh, do you ever worry in parts you're just like reading Wikipedia to your audience? I remember, like not the whole book, obviously, that'd be such a drag, but what I mean is um, like when you're figuring out a bit uh, mm. to go in the book. Uh, because I just remember when I was doing my Weird Facts web show back in the day, I'd sometimes look at my script and worry I wasn't adding enough humor or enough of my voice. You know, like it was a cool fact, but it was like a cool fact they could read anywhere. It wasn't like, you know what I mean? Yeah, that was a concern with How to Invent Everything because that is a book of, you know, here's a page about how to build a screw and here's a page about how to build a plow and here's a page about how to build a computer from, from water. Yeah. <laughs> And so when you cut something down to its core essence, it wasn't that I was worried that the, this would read like a Wikipedia page, but I was worried that someone would be like, oh, this book is Wikipedia with jokes. Mm -hmm. And obviously you, you want to aim higher than Wikipedia with jokes. <laughs> um, but I think the, the cure for that is when you're writing, you're also reading and making sure that what you're reading is uh, interesting and fun and has more than just a series of facts. It also helps like, when you're doing all this research that's not going to be on Wikipedia. <laughs> Wikipedia gives you a surface level understanding, but doesn't go into depth for most things. And so it helps that when you find something that is in print and not online, it makes you understand that this is not something that is generally commonly known. And so sharing it feels more justified than being like everything on this page you can find in a more scholarly voice in a different order at en.wikipedia.org forward slash screws. <laughs> Or what have you. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Good answer, man. Um, okay. So on a related note, like it's a little research adjacent, I guess. Uh, at the end of the book, you give mm -hmm. thanks to the professionals who spoke with me and answered my very suspicious sounding questions during the writing of this book, including Trevor. Uh, I'm probably going to bone some of these, but whatever. Including Trevor Paglin, Dr. Blake Richards, Simon Bell. Sorry. You're going to what? Mess up the names. Yeah, that's what people normally say before. They're not going to bone some of these, including Trevor Paglin. <laughs> yeah, I'm probably going to sleep with some of the following people that Ryan uh, thanked in his book. Anyway, so yeah. look forward to that, everybody. Um, but anyway. <laughs> anyway, so you thanked some folk, including Trevor Paglin, who mm -hmm. made me nervous about his name and took us down this cul-de-sac, Dr. Blake Richards, Simon Bell, Nick Oberg, and John Lomberg. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, I personally, uh, I'm curious about all these guys, really, but how exactly did you get to connect with Mr. Lomberg, the design director for NASA's Voyager record? Like, that's super cool. Yeah, he's he's a really cool guy. Um, and I know everyone says that when they talk to someone famous, but like, we had a great chat and then he sent me a bunch of art that he'd done and I sent him some comics I'd written. Uh, and his email is on a site. I just emailed him and said, hey, Mr. Lomberg, I'm writing this book about uh, super villainy and I'd love to talk to you about preserving messages in deep time and a bit about me I have written this book and I've written uh, Squirrel Girl from Marvel and 
all this other stuff. And I sent it off and I was, you know, hoping for the best, but not expecting much because he's John Lumberg. His, the words he did on the Voyager records will outlive all of us and likely humanity as a whole. And it's just an incredible guy. And he wrote me back, I think within the day being like, Hey, yeah, let's have a call. And I think part of it that helped me was that he is a big comics fan and we could talk about comics for a bit of it. And so I wasn't just some rando. I was a guy who did comics. And we, there was a comics angle on it. But I also know he has spoken to some randos. Like he's, he's super generous with his time and he's super interesting. Like he's, here's a guy who has worked to send information out into deep space that might possibly be one day read by extraterrestrials or might one day just be the last thing that survives from this planet. Like that is, that is a huge honor. And he had six weeks to do it, <laughs> just wild. And he was so fascinating to talk to that. I ended up having a sidebar in the book. That's like, okay. So in the text, it's stuff that I talked to John Lumberg about that was important for the book. But here's some really interesting stuff we talked about, about Voyager and, <laughs> and landers on Mars and all this really fascinating information that is also uh, interesting and maybe not directly germane, but this is something he said in conversation to me and I don't want it to be lost because it's super, super cool. That's awesome. Um, I mean, with, uh, without giving away perhaps personal information you shouldn't, how, how, were you, how did you get in touch with him? I mean, I gather he's very up to talking to people, but like, did you just know like a buddy of his or...? No, I went to his website, and his email was there, and I emailed him. Sorry, I I feel like I just repeated the question because I couldn't believe how simple it was. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it doesn't work. I've emailed other people for the book, and they didn't get in touch with me, which I, you know, fair. It's a a cold email from a complete stranger saying, hey, can I have some of your time? And that is something that they need to be able to do and have, have the freedom to do and be generous enough to do it. And I don't fault anyone who couldn't because I've, I've gotten tons of requests from strangers and you can't say yes to all of them because there's not enough time in the day so it's luck and it's uh human kindness <laughs> well bless him because uh, i really enjoyed uh that aside section as well as the yeah the book's course. the book's better for him in it i feel like there's a certain type of person i think that's most of us who when you think about stuff like the voyager spacecraft going into deep space effectively forever <laughs> yeah. that's so cool like that's fascinating and the idea that we don't know how long it could last that it could last for 10 billion years or more is incredible like that's that's a time scale that you can't even imagine it's just so much bigger than human lifetime that it becomes wild yeah no it's, it's yeah I, I feel like we can spend like the rest of the hours talking about that but let's uh <laughs> let's move on to something far more quotidian uh <laughs> than the vast quotidian uh, yeah, I'm a writer, Ryan. Um, yeah, what does yeah. that mean? I'm too, but I've, 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 it's a word I've read I haven't used. It's What's just it like mean? a $10,000 way of saying something more uh, run-of-the-mill, day-to-day, you know, like not, not as lofty and, and cosmic, certainly, uh, as what we were just talking about. Sure. Of course, now I've said that out loud, I'm also immediately feeling imposter syndrome. And <laughs> I got that Is that wrong. what it means? Just, just wrong That's what it means on this show. That's yeah. the Oliver Quotidian. <laughs> All right, I'm renaming the podcast, The Quotidian Show. Uh, So what would you say are the qualities or techniques to aim for beyond, you know, entertaining when writing a popular science book? Because you've written two, maybe you're even thinking about a third, and I assume you read a few. Uh, Mm. Like, what what really makes one of these things come together? It's interesting, because I feel like there's so many ways to approach it, right? Like, I have a bunch of books on single subjects, which I already revealed that I love, where it's like, here's everything you need to know about paper or wine or sand or glass. Or like, here's here's everything you can find about that topic. And I just hoover that up. But for me, and this is going to get into like a, a brain worm situation. 
I get really twitchy around originality, and I recognize it can be both a strength and a weakness. Uh, I'll give you an example, Dinosaur Comics. Comic I started, same pictures, different words. I did it because I wanted to do a comic and didn't know that comic writer was a job. I thought you had to do the whole thing yourself because all I remember these cool indie comics. And I thought I came up with this clever hack that no one had done before of reusing the same sequence of images and just changing the words every day. And I found out six months into it that uh, David Lynch, now mostly known for his movies, was did a comic in college called The Angriest Dog in the World where he reused the same three panels every day. And had I known that six months ago when I started Dinosaur Comics, I would never have started it, which means I would never have had a career. I wouldn't, wouldn't have done writing. It would be a very different Ryan North you would not be speaking to right now. <laughs> I would have nothing to say to your audience. Yeah, maybe if I did a podcast about like computational linguistics, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it's so weird to see that so much hinges on that choice. And I know in my heart that I would never have done it if I thought someone had done it before. Because that idea of originality is so twitchy with me but of course we're all speaking a language that other people speak like this idea of true originality is kind of a, an ideal that cannot be realized but i still know that that's something that i get not worried but to, i'll keep saying the word twitch i get twitchy about it and so how to admit everything i knew that book didn't exist because i've been wanting to read it for a long time and i hadn't read nonfiction that started with a fictional premise in the same way of being like here's something that is clearly untrue and ludicrous but fun and now we're going to learn a lot about the real world as we explore this untrue but ludicrous and fun idea. And I wanted to do that again, and that's where How to Take Over the World comes from. We start with this premise of, here's a guide to taking over the world, which is ludicrous and, and, and fun, but has lets us give motivation for exploring the, the actual science and technology behind it. And so that is something that I haven't seen done a lot and I think is interesting and unexplored. Like we talk about comics, there's stuff in comics, but the medium is not fully explored, and that's why... I find comics so much more interesting than the novel, which I feel like, and I, I'm sure you have listeners who are being like, he just, <laughs> he, he just dumped on novels here. He says novels are boring. They're not boring. They're fine. They do good stuff. <laughs> that was so convincing. Great library. They're fine. They're fine. God. But it's just, it's this safety net when you're working in an unpopular medium that isn't like comics as much as they have had influence on superhero movies and stuff. They're still not a popular medium. They're less read than basically any other form of print media. And so when you're working in this less popular, less explored medium, it's a lot easier to be original and not worry about the stuff we're talking about of like being a print out of Wikipedia or whatever, because there's fewer people doing it. And that means, yes, there's fewer people reading it, but it helps me with my brain worms of being like, this is more original because I can take a, a more complete survey. If you're writing a novel, you're never going to read every novel. You're never going to read even a fraction of the novels. You don't know what's been done because there's so much there, right? But I can yeah, read... You do your I can best, have a, but... <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I can have a pretty good idea of what's happening, at least in North American comics. I can't read them all, but I can have a, I have a pretty good gist of it. So I can feel good about what I'm doing, at least not competing with what's there. And again, like I don't think this is healthy. I don't think it's good to think the way I do. <laughs> Being like, if someone else has an idea close to this, then I need to stop or never do it in the first place. Because... You know, Star Trek and Star Wars, a lot of similarities, a lot of differences. Yeah. The Neither is fully is original. The idea, like, there's a lot yeah. of, you know, there's been quite a few movies about, like, time-traveling robot goes back to do a thing, but there's only one Terminator 2, right? So, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, I, again, this is, I keep saying brain works, and I'll make it sound like it's a bad thing that I'm cursed with and not a benefit that I flaunt. <laughs> well, it can be kind of 50-50, right? Like you say, like, it nearly stopped your whole damn writing career, but it also has benefited that career. So, eh? yeah, I mean, yeah, like I've, no one had done a uh, choose your own path 
Shakespeare book before because it's a ludicrous idea. Yeah. yeah. But it's, also, I, mean, I think it's a great idea. It's a lot of fun. No, I agree. And to come back to uh, this book and uh, how to invent uh, everything, I really like that they have these kinds of framing devices that also create, or infer, I should say, because it's not like you put a bunch of lore in it, but they infer a world. Yeah. You know? And so to me, it's this kind of context that gets my imagination going a little more than, say, um, I think there were like a dozen of these books. So I don't think I'm crapping on any one guy in particular when I say I personally got very bored by those books that were popular a few years back where it's like, hey, you know, if Superman flew as fast as he supposedly does in the books. His underwear would tear off exactly this fast because it was just like the difference between a stand up comedian that just goes up and just tells like one liners over, over, over. Yeah. Uh, and this comedian who tells like great stories that contain within them uh, emotional truths and uh, also great humor. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think that's common. Thank you. Yes, it is. <laughs> right. <laughs> Look at your face and your eyes. We're kind of like, see, see that? yes, it's absolutely a compliment. I'm saying that, 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 your, that your brainworms or whatever about originality in the terms of the uh, these two popular science books you've written gave them a framing device that engaged me way more than if it had just been, you know, now here's a chapter of, like I say, like, just like, what if something fantastic was interpreted literally, it would explode or catch on fire, and then like variations on that for an entire book. Yeah, and I mean, the, the fun of the book is you need to get around that, because we are actually viably doing this. So we can't just say, oh, Superman's pants would catch on fire, it's a fair way for him to do that without his pants catching on fire, because we need to have this work. <laughs> exactly. And I, I think I've kind of already trod on some of it. But if you don't mind sharing, what do you think, and, and this doesn't have to be in the context of taking a dump on anybody else, it could be like things that you thought about when you were like, okay, I'm going to do this what are the things i want mm -hmm. to avoid you know what makes for a kind of crappy popular science book other than being written by a latter-day neil degrasse tyson yeah i said it <laughs> so i'm gonna answer that question by having it transformed from your mouth to my ears to become uh what are the things you try to avoid yes. when writing this book and i feel like the version of this book that I wasn't interested in reading or writing was one where it's called How to Take Over the World, and instead of giving you the tools you needed to actually accomplish it, it would start by saying, you know, okay, so every villain needs to have a secret base, so let's start by talking about what color your cape is going to be and what mask you're going to wear and all this sort of like fun and maybe interesting, but there was no way to back it up. There's no science there. We're talking about aesthetics. We're talking about style. We're talking about... You know, maybe you could do the logistics of, like, having a base shaped like a skull. But for me, the more interesting thing was, okay, if you have a base, like, you need to feed and water these people. <laughs> and if it's a secret base, how do we keep it hidden on a planet with satellites? And if it's if we're feeding and water them, we need to have it sustainable so that if you're, if you're cut off for years, you still be able to survive. Like, a secret base is not going to be a secret base if, if, if it relies on civilization around it continuing because then you're just, that's a secret vacation home like you need to have it to be self-sufficient that then we start in, getting into some really interesting problems and logistical concerns that are non-trivial and to me a uh, lot more fun to talk about than you know whether your your cape should be red or, or black so i i want it to be real again let's say the other this is a credible book this is a, a real book with a ludicrous premise and let's actually treat the premise seriously and answer the questions it raises and never once do the cheat of being like, okay, well, this is all make-believe. You know, we're just having fun here. We don't need to actually worry about how you're going to feed your hench people because this is all fake and it's all in a book. Like, that kills the yeah, book. Maybe we that can have a little shrink ray in chapter four. Like, what's the little yeah, like, as soon as you yeah. chat shrink, you're like, well, what are we, what are we doing here? <laughs> yeah. No, so no, I, I guess mean... the, the core of what I'm saying is I want to have a fun premise and I want to take it seriously because the fun of it is, is figuring that out. It's, it's, it's basically the same thing as, like, who would win in a fight, Superman or Batman? 
you don't just say Batman. You say, okay, well, Batman, because here's all the things he would do. And the fun of discussing that is thinking, oh, okay, how do you defeat this man who can shoot lasers out of his eyes and breathe you into an ice cube? <laughs> we need to, yeah, we need no, to I, do that. I don't think anyone could accuse you of not committing to the bit. You know, I, <laughs> when, you, when, you, <laughs> when you gave me, you know, when you sent me the, the PDF, <laughs> I saw it was like 415 pages. And I am a guy who has trouble reading on screens. Like, I don't know. I just find anything over about a 5,000 word thing piece. I have, I have trouble. So, sure. uh, but, it, but it's what you had to give me. And I wanted to do this interview and, and I wanted to mm-hmm. my buddy's book. So I did it in Drifts and Drabs. And then I found myself reading much further, actually, than I normally ever do in one sitting with an ebook because it just grabbed me. It just worked. And a big part of that is what you just described of like really engaging, um, not just the imagination, but like the problem solving. Mm-hmm. Of, you know, part of the brain. So I felt like it was grabbing me on a couple of a couple of places, and yeah, it was, well, that, was that's fun, right? Where they're <laughs> one of my favorite scenes from a not great movie uh, is the core. Yes, and... I know exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I literally was telling Sasha, my partner about this recently, <laughs> and it came up, and she and I was like, "Okay, do this with your glasses." Sorry. Sorry. Yeah, Except yeah. Well, I, I showed it to my my wife Jen because she said you made that up. It didn't happen. I saw this movie. I don't remember that scene. I'm like, no, it absolutely did. And I found it on streaming and showed it to her. So the core is a ludicrous movie where they decide the Earth's core. I think an electromagnetic storm, something. Maybe the sun stopped it. The Earth core is, has shut down, and they need to reboot it with a nuke. So they have to visit the Earth's core, which is an amazing premise. Like, how do we get to the Earth's core? This chapter in my book about it. And in the movie, they say quite reasonably, uh, we don't have any material that can withstand the heat and pressure of the Earth's core. And <laughs> scientist. Uh, takes off his glasses and he says, but what if we could? <laughs> and then they do it. And the, the movie skips over the part of how they do it besides saying, oh, we have this unobtainium. I think it's literally called unobtainium that lets us do it. But for me, the fun is, is saying, but what if we could? And then figure out how you can answer that. Like, but yeah, what if we could? <laughs> yeah. What? So we want to control the weather. Well, that's impossible. We, no one could do that. But what if we could? Yeah, well, and let's figure out a way to do it. Glasses at the right yeah. angle. Yeah, <laughs> your performance of that bit has had lived rent free and quite welcome to do so uh, in my head for years. <laughs> it's it's a great scene. Oh my god, I love it. Yeah, no, I'm yeah. gonna I'm gonna have to find a point somewhere in anything I I, I make where I can just have that happen. I have a sign to say. Like, but what if we could? And, and just jump cut to the whatever the hell I want. And yeah, and then jump cut somewhere. to them doing it. Like it, it's great. <laughs> so good. Um, <laughs> Right, that, that film again was the core. The uh, core, yeah. <laughs> um, all right, so there's a downright suspicious amount of learning in this book, <laughs> uh, in a lot of your books, really, but the last two in particular. Mm-hmm. What form, like just you know, as a person here, what form of learning do you most enjoy? And is it necessarily the most effective way for you to learn? Are you more of a visual learner? You, is it better to like be you know, listen to like a lot of audiobooks? Does that work better? How, what really makes things stick with you and makes you enjoy the process of soaking up all this information that you use uh, in your books and also just for pleasure? I, I think, honestly, and this is almost repeating what we've been saying, is the premise why you're learning this. Like, why, why do we care about this? It answers the question of, you know, in school, when are we going to learn this? By starting with, a premise that makes learning it interesting. And the best example I can think of that is uh, there is a book called, I believe, The World Without Us. And the premise is, what if all humanity in a single second disappeared for reasons that don't need exploring at this juncture? They're just gone. What happens next? And what it is is an exploration of um, how infrastructure decays. (laughs) But 
learning, you know, that a uh, hydroelectric plant could probably run for a couple days without human maintenance before something went wrong, or maybe even a couple months. And after that point, the electrical grid would necessarily collapse. Like that's that's cool, but it's hard to motivate learning about how a, a turbine works unless you're in the premise of everyone's disappeared. We're wondering how long society can maintain itself or the, the range of society, or in my case, uh, having everything, you're trapped in the past and now need to build an elect- source of electricity as quickly as possible to build a new civilization. Like that's a motivating factor for it. And that I feel like makes it so much more interesting when you have a reason to be learning it. So if I were a teacher, I feel like I would start my classes with some fictional premise of, you know, turns out we've all been transported to France and no one speaks English. So we better learn this quick. Here's your (laughs) Becherel. Let's talk about simple verb tenses. (laughs) And at the end, we'll do an experiment to see who is most likely to be able to ask for food and shelter and survive to the next class. Like that sort of thing. It just, it gets a little kick to make it motivating for you as a person to have a reason to do this, to answer the question of when are we ever going to use this right off the top. I think that's fun. That, that's what gets me the most engaged, is that, I that fictional. Be, I think you would be a great science teacher. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, just even as you were saying that, I was like, yeah, I'm into that. Although I also started imagining kind of a reality show element where like, you know, who makes it to the next class? Who doesn't? Uh, yeah. Just like <laughs> writing the parents and be like, sorry. Yeah, because uh, these titrations are going to decide who survives. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, your kid couldn't ask for a baguette, though, so at the end, uh, yeah. they come back next year, try again. C plus C next um. year, yeah. <laughs> but even just, like, at the end, you give them a little... Maybe maybe you're asking for candy, so the person who does it gets a candy at the end. I don't know. Motivating people's I, food and ideas. That's me. <laughs> I'm into it. <laughs> All right. I look forward to the chocolate bar being taped to, uh, you know, your next book. Yeah. This Wednesday, or the Wednesday before we sat down to record this, you mm-hmm. made a bold claim on Twitter.com. Oh, I you, do that often. <laughs> you described yourself as, quote, a busy and productive guy, exclamation mark. I said that? You did. I've even got a hyperlink uh, at hand here, so I'll send that to you later to, to back my support. Oh, no, I said, okay, I did I say know, that, but it was I'm in defense. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it anyway, was because I was tweeting about a video game at, like, 10 in the morning, and I wanted people to know that I wasn't yeah. playing video games at 10 in the morning. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and what I was actually doing was listening to the soundtrack of that video game, which is a good soundtrack. Continue with your question. <laughs> well, anyway, that got me thinking. Um, so that was a bit of a pokey way of getting to this question, but mm-hmm. it was fun uh, for me anyway. The last few times, <laughs> uh, you know, I've I've hung out with you in person. Um, you weren't like moaning or being miserable or anything, but I do remember more than once you sounded like a little overworked or exhausted when mention of like all the things you're working on came up. And like, I know you're really good at organizing how you work. I've never forgotten, well, I've forgotten the, the specifics, but I've never forgotten the gist of you explained this to me just something a long time ago about like how you use a keyboard and macros and stuff and just like avoiding wasted keystrokes, which is a phrase that just burned into my memory. Uh, yeah, well, I, it takes a second to move your hand from the keyboard to the mouse. So the more you can do with the keyboard, that that's time in your pocket, my friend. Yes, but then unfortunately the part of my brain that's like, you know, well, everybody has this voice, I think, sometimes that's like, you're bad and you should feel bad. Like, I would go to the kitchen to get something, come back, realize I forgot something else, and my brain would be like, wasted keystrokes. (laughs) (laughs) What are you doing? Amazing. (laughs) So many wasted keystrokes. Uh, But anyway, (laughs) 
part is you think about, you know, you think harder, I think, than, than most people I speak to about optimizing your, your, your workflow. But I'm also wondering, like, how do you deal with, like, the overall life-work balance situation and the self-employed person struggle with the feast-famine cycle that makes it so difficult to turn down work? You know, how do you, I mean, it's, it's okay if the answer is I'm still figuring it out, but, you know, how, how, do, you, how do you figure that out? Well, um, the thing I haven't figured out is how to divorce your own sense of self-worth from the reception of your work. <laughs> Because uh, I will tell you in confidence, you and podcast listeners, that uh, the day the first issue of Squirrel Girl dropped, I spent the entire day on Twitter just re searching for the phrase Squirrel Girl and refreshing it because people were saying nice things. And it was it was great. I was like, I would yes, I would like some more compliments. Please give them to me. Especially people who don't even know that I'm ego searching for a whole day. And at the end of the day, I was like, a, I lost a day of work, and B, I feel like I spent all day eating candy. Like this is yeah, it's not yeah. I had none of these compliments inform my writing in any way. <laughs> they were just nice to have. So for me, sort of the logistics of how I work, I will I, I've learned that I work best in the morning. I find it hard usually to write unless things are going really well. After like two o'clock in the afternoon, it becomes more of a slog. So I'll try not to write after two, I'll answer emails or whatever. I write with music on, but instrumental. However, I can listen to words with lyrics that won't distract me if it's on infinite loop. So I'll put a song on infinite loop and then work alone because no one wants to be around a guy listening to the same song all day long. I still remember uh, Victor, uh, sorry, uh, Mr. Nassim's <laughs> brother, uh, understandably getting irate sitting in the same apartment with you years ago. <laughs> you would just find one song you liked and be like, what if 300 repetitions? <laughs> yeah, you remember him telling me I used to like that song and you ruined it um, through repetition. And he was right. <laughs> I usually write comedy, and so I, I write alone because when I'm writing comedy, I'm trying to make myself laugh, and it's embarrassing to be seen laughing at your own jokes. So all these little tricks I've learned that work for me, um, and those are sort of like the, the nitty-gritty part of it. But yeah, I think there's parts that I struggle with, which is the tying myself worth the reception of a book, and parts that I do pretty well, which is probably... I feel like, I don't know, I feel like I do social media okay. I hate a lot of things <laughs> with social media. Yeah. And one thing There's that killed me, one thing that killed me, I read it last week. It was a video. The guy who ran the Steak Ums account, uh, he works for a brand agency, and he had a video that was saying, here's all the successes we've had with Steak Ums over the past four years or whatever. And like, I know it's a brand account because it's called Steak Ums. They're selling friggin', I don't even know what they are, hamburgers in a tray or something? I don't know what they are, but... <laughs> Their whole thing is they're clearly here to sell steakums. I, I can't believe they're called steakums. It's a hard name not to laugh at. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. And so their brand was first. They were sassy, and then they were posting about like social justice and all this stuff where you feel like there's at least someone behind the keyboard who is a real person who sees the world the way you do. And then watching this video where it's just putting a number on everything. And when we were talking about social justice, that got us over three million organic impressions. And I was like, this is the bleakest fucking shit I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> <laughs> like, I understand it's a brand, but surely there is some part of our lives that is not monetized. Surely there are some things we can say that we don't go after a year later and make a spreadsheet and a PowerPoint presentation about how effective the media impressions were. Like, that is bleak. And so for social media, and I, I everyone does it differently, but I feel like I just, I want there to be a human behind the keyboard. <laughs> And so, yes, I will post about listening to a soundtrack and making a joke about being a productive and valued member of society and not playing video games on morning. And then occasionally I'll be like, and also I got this new book coming out and you can go here and buy it and please do. And thanks for the support. But for me, 
like I'm pleased that I can look at my Twitter feed and see myself reflected in it and not feel like I'm just this I don't even know robots are wrong word. spam bot not even like the fact that it wasn't spam the fact that they've been doing this for years and at the end of it yeah. they produced a slick video <laughs> talking about the impressions <laughs> I got it's just it kills me it's the same thing with like the web3 tech bros nft space where everything should be uh, uh, something that's transactional and commercial well yeah and i feel like it ties back into um maybe maybe i'm wrong but i'm just remembering a conversation we had a long time ago about you saying the word entrepreneur like really got on your tits because, oh hate it yeah yeah and it just feels in a similar vein i think to that it's this idea of everything having to be quantifiable monetizable um yeah yeah, like I, I know personally one thing I will when that dark day comes and one of my parents perishes, I will never post about it on social media because I never want to risk going to my grave knowing how many likes my mom's death got. You know what I mean? It's, <laughs> you want to talk about that. leak. <laughs> yeah. You know, if you had posted about your parents' death at either ten AM or two PM, that could yeah. boost the uh, viral traction you might like again that, that that sort of stuff and what kills me and this is a sidebar is that this is how people are being trained by social media to see the world and like that i have this this bugbear about the word content where i hate the word mm. because mm. when you call yourself a content creator you are describing yourself and what you do for a company like you are the content they put in their empty vessel it makes what you your work it's something fungible it's something uh liquid re replaceable it's just uh something that fills a hole that someone else has made and yeah, the term I hate it. all of human creation into a, a soylent like story. yeah yeah <laughs> and i feel like people of our generation a lot of us feel that way because it's an artificial phrase that we didn't have growing up but i see younger people who call themselves proudly content creators or youtubers or tiktokers describing their identity in terms of something a company wants them to think of themselves at and i just like i feel like this is my old man rant this is where i'm like this is something i will never accept and i'll be 80 years old sniggering at the word content <laughs> and people will be like what does that why does that matter like nobody cares this decision this battle has been lost in 2010 and they're right and then one day you will die and they'll be like oh good content you know <laughs> yeah, yeah thanks for the content ryan you made some really good content in your times <laughs> Yeah, anyway, sorry. My content. Yeah, no, it's okay. Um, no, I'm right there with you. It's always fun to hear someone else articulate things you uh, vociferously agree with. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I think we got away from the question a little bit. That's okay. I, we got we got some insight into how you manage the work life balance uh, situation. Mm -hmm. And how are you for uh, wrestling with the whole thing of like I can't turn down any work because money. All right. Um, that was actually the core of the question. So, or I gotta stop working because I want to spend some time with my partner. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I gotta stop yeah, I mean, the, the answer there is to have a partner who says, it's 5.30, come down for dinner. We're making dinner now. Like, yeah. um, It also helps. I have never experienced burnout, but I have seen it in my friends often enough that I know I don't want to experience it. And so when work becomes work, when writing becomes a slog, which is what I was saying about around 2 p.m., uh, I love to stop. I love to be like, okay, I'm done for today. I'm not going to feel bad about it because I don't want to, uh, you know, borrow from tomorrow to make today good. I want to just keep this being fun and keep this being something I enjoy. And so uh, that helps with take not taking on too much work because then I will hate it. I also really hate the idea of not hitting a deadline, so I'll avoid that at all costs. And one thing I've learned is that the work has to interest you. Otherwise, it becomes work. And so for taking on stuff, if it's a job that would pay well, but I would hate, uh, I'd say no, like I don't. And it's not, it's not even like, look at me, I'm turning down work because I'm so great. It's, 
I know that if I said yes, a job that if I enjoyed would take a week, now that I hate it, is going to take two, three, or four for the same amount of money. It, it just becomes a bad idea, a bad proposition. Mm -hmm. So knowing that I hate doing stuff I'm not interested in, and I hate the feeling of having too much work and not being able to do it or not being able to do a good job on it, I try to hit that happy medium. And it's, it's obviously an impossible thing because you don't control a lot of things. You don't control when offers come your way. You don't control changes in deadlines and stuff. So it's, it's, it's a bit of a gamble, but it's something that I think is important for anyone who is doing freelance work is to, because you're the only one who's going to be maintaining that work-life balance, who's going to be telling, who's going to be deciding this is good or this is bad. So you have to make those choices. You can't you don't want to be in a position where you overextended yourself and now you're like, well, the next two years are going to be horrible. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. at least I'll make some money. Like, I, I like to avoid that if yeah, I can. Yeah, and I guess it's taken some time for you to get there because, like I say, like, I do remember, again, I, I didn't write this down in my diary, sorry, so I can't take the precise year. Mm. But somewhere in, in the years we've known each other, I remember you being like, this year, I, I got to do a little less. <laughs> you know, like, it's obviously been like a figuring out, like, the right ratio for you. Yeah, yeah, it's a process. I mean, I, I wasn't, I didn't start knowing this and I still, there was um, a time last year where I had two months that I was like, all I got to do is get through these two months. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll be fine. But that was a combination of uh, deadlines being pushed up and pushed back and all landing in the same spot where I had to do more work than I was comfortable with, which I know it makes me sound like this man of leisure. <laughs> but it's it's not that I was like, oh, man, I have to work past two. It was, oh, man, this is going, everything has to go perfectly. And I'm going to have to dig into my weekends to make this work. Yeah, well, yeah that happens. And uh, just before we yeah. move on to the next question, I want to make sure you're aware of a term I think you'll hate to death. That relates to this. Um, have you Please. encountered the term? Uh, yes. <laughs> uh, have you encountered the term grind set? Oh, I am pleased to say that until this very moment, I have spent all my time on God's green earth without <laughs> experiencing the term grind set. Um, I am familiar with with grind culture and hustle culture, and I think again, it is reducing all you are to what you can do for someone else. And yeah, I don't like it. Thanks. Yeah, no, no. I just <laughs> this is mindset with grind set. I just heard it the other day. Right. I just started like barfing blood i uh <laughs> may, may have been unrelated i should see a doctor but uh you know it's just, it's just grind set. you gotta get in that grind set and it just makes you think of people i knew back at you know when going to school who would just be proud of like not sleeping for a week before handing in a paper and yeah. i'd be like yeah you know your, your body's gonna pay for that like every time someone would try and you know because some of it's also that nervousness of wanting to appear cool and productive at all times well, right? I, think Which it, is, I think it's that's something you can point to that's a it's a number right like it's something yeah. that is quantifiable i work so hard that I only got two hours of sleep last night. It's proof that I worked hard. And I get the the desire for it. I, I would love to have something I can point to that says, you know, the even if the work is bad, you can tell I, I tried really hard, but that doesn't really matter, right? The, the more mature thing is, it doesn't matter how hard you tried, it matters if the work is good. And so build your life such that you can do good work and you're probably exactly. not doing your best work after being up for 14 hours straight. Wait, yeah. 14 hours is not that long. Yeah. Uh, 24 hours. <laughs> wow, wow, did you just reveal something about yourself? You're like, hey, maybe you are a bit of a man of leisure, Ryan. I'm never conscious for more than eight hours. I can't. Yeah, after, after six hours of consciousness, I am, you know, someone else put me to bed. Yeah, what am I, a farmer? <laughs> okay, um, you have written in a wide variety of formats. You know, you've got children book, uh, webs comics, graphic novels, including singular works, monthlies, limited series, you know, short stories, uh, choose your own, uh, chooseable adventure. Let's mm -hmm. be clear here. Chooseable adventure books. Uh, Ryan just winked at me uh, when I said that, and I liked it. Video games and popular science books, like the ones we're talking about. Mm -hmm. um, when you're working on several projects at once in a variety of formats, 
how do you handle task shifting? You know, getting into the right head for today's dinosaur comic, then hopping from that to polishing some dialogue for a video game right. encounter. But oh wait, you got to get a script for issue three of one of two ongoing monthlies to the artist. Blah. You know, how 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 do you handle that? Um, so I used to just do it on a band, and then there came a time in my life where I was working on Squirrel Girl, which is a all ages comedy superhero comic, and my adaptation of Kurt Vonnegut's Slaughterhouse Five, which is a <laughs> very dark it's comedy but it's like black comedy about the author's experience in world war ii and the firebombing of dresden and uh i did that for maybe two days and i was like this is not working i can't go from the firebombing of dresden to squirrel girl versus dr doom and not feel horrible and so um what i what i do what i've done before and i broke that and i switched back to it and i've now done since is i tend to do a morning afternoon split so morning, I'll work on Squirrel Girl, then I'll go have lunch. Nice block of time, you know, a nice three-hour lunch. No, it's, it's a, like a half hour to an hour lunch. And then I'll work on on Slaughterhouse or vice versa. I'll do Slaughterhouse, then do Squirrel in the afternoon. Having that break between helps. And so when I'm doing multiple projects, um, my ideal day is me doing one project in the morning and one in the afternoon. And that also helps me break the I can't work past two o'clock rule because then I've just started and it's something new and exciting. It helps carry me through that uh, afternoon slump and keep it going. Yeah, I think that's pretty wise. Like when I have the luxury of writing for a full day, I try to do something along those lines because otherwise, yeah, you just start to get snoozy at two in the afternoon. Uh, if it's yeah. only one project, um, you know, I've been conscious for six hours. It's nuts. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Also, funny enough, uh, just you describing what you did, maybe I could see a, pa a panel from the Slaughterhouse Five adaptation in my mind, but I was trying to imagine Billy Pilgrim in like a blasted wasteland saying, uh, you know, kick butts, eat nuts, or whatever. <laughs> 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 like, I don't know if that works. Yeah, you don't want to um, cross those streams. <laughs> uh, now, I w we kind of touched upon this earlier, but um, actually, we were much did, but whatever. Uh, speaking of formats, kind of ironically, in light of the name of this podcast, you've never written a classic singular path novel. Now, after you dismissed no. a, a 400 year old art form, I think, uh, a moment ago. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, said, I believe I said it was fine. It's fine. It's fine. Yeah, it's fine. It's, um, you know, it's, we all find our own path. <laughs> um, but I mean, is it something you've ever seriously considered, or were you just like, nah? <laughs> <laughs> no, it is. I remember I was doing a um, interview. Okay, I'm only mentioning this name because it's important for the story. I was doing an interview with uh, Lev Grossman, who was talking to me about Romeo and or Juliet. And he's a, I would say, famous author. I like him a lot. And he asked me questions about writing this nonlinear path. And at the end, he's like, great, thanks for the call. I was like, wait, 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 Lev, while I'm on the line, I've got some questions for you. I want to ask you some questions as a famous, established author. And he was like, all right, sure, yeah, let's do it. And I was like, so listen, Lev, because I'm on a first name basis with him, clearly. Yeah, yeah, please. <laughs> um, when I was writing Romeo and or Juliet, what I liked was it was this nonlinear path, so I could always change things, add things. I was never committed to a choice, which is the very nature of a beast. But when you're writing a novel, here's my fear. I'm on page 500 of the novel, and I've realized that I made a mistake on page 10, and I have to throw away everything I've done, because it's bad now. And how do you avoid that? And the answer he gave me, which I loved, was he was like, look, Ryan, because we're on a first name basis, yes. uh, readers want to have a good time with your work. They're on your side and they will forgive a lot. There was something in The Magicians where I realized after it went to print, that's a plot hole. I made a mistake. And readers didn't notice or if they did they made up an explanation for why it wasn't a problem. Like they, If you have them on your side, they're going to want to have a good time. And so that helped address my fear of writing a novel which is i would make a mistake and throw out the whole thing out and hate my life but that's that i still haven't done it and i think part of it is there's 
so many interesting problems <laughs> in uh-huh. comics and interesting things that I don't know the answers to that I don't... I'm sure they exist in novels. I just haven't seen them. Um, I don't mean to dismiss a 400-year-old art form. I'm sure it's... The, I'll, I'll go so far as to say it's more than fine. And I, you know, some of my best friends write novels and I've read uh-huh. plenty of novels and enjoyed my time with them. But I don't think you have to write a novel to be a real writer. I don't think oh. it's... a, a checkbox you necessarily need to check and so i also feel like someone who is not especially interested in novels right now probably shouldn't be writing a novel i would like to write one someday and i feel like there will come a day where i'm like i have a great idea for a novel and i'm the challenge there is like i don't know how to do it there's a lot of unsolved problems that i'll get to encounter but right now it's not especially where my interests lie i keep going on with this answer because i'm trying to find a way that doesn't make it sound egotistical (laughs) i don't want to sound like i'm too good for novels Dude, don't worry. It's not egotistical at all. You're literally just describing in terms of your interest, not some sort of abstract empirical measurement of quality of medium. Well, I did earlier say novels are fine. (laughs) Yeah, well, um, that is true, true, true. Uh, But I wouldn't worry about it. I wouldn't stress, Uh, especially because, like, like you're literally talking to a guy who's writing a novel and does a podcast about it, uh, and I don't feel insulted, so I don't get invested in the medium. Well, (laughs) good luck with your little story. Yeah, yeah. No, no, I just asked asked because... um, well, I guess uh, not because I think you have to write a novel to be a real author or whatever. Like the concept of a real author, just yeah, whatever that bugs me. Uh, but because uh, I really like what you've done in all those other mediums, and, I, and so a part of me was like, yeah, if I saw, you know, I don't know, we didn't talk for a really extended period, and then one day I went to a book sh- uh, store and saw a novel by Ryan North. I, I hope you have a better title. Uh, you know, I would be intrigued. I'd yeah, be like, I would oh, too. I would, I would Ryan, like to read that book. I, I wonder. Well, my my. My question there is, what's Ryan doing with this book? I'm curious. Yeah. What's his What's his twist? Is that how many footnotes? Okay, yeah. That so that's interesting. So now now you've defined it as Ryan. Your novel has to be something is is implied it's something that is interesting and doing something clever with the form. And so now the challenge of what can you do that's clever with novels is actually something really cool. Well, yeah, and also because you have this established career at this point now, so like people have an idea of what to expect from you, including uh, people yeah. who haven't been for a long time like I have. And, and they can be, uh, we're on first name basis, Ryan. Uh, and yep. uh, you can, <laughs> and you can, uh, you know, yeah, there's, there's uh, expectations that come with your work, all positive, I think, that would infuse the prospect. Uh, where, but, I, I, I mean, mean I can tell you that I'm I'm the most excited for writing a novel during this conversation than I have been before in my life, so that's great. <laughs> well, hey, there you go. All right, I'm doing God's work here. Uh, and uh, yeah. I also, I uh, frankly, I uh, even if you were like, I'm just going to write the most, you know, nuts and bolts story about a college professor, get this, wants to sleep with one of his students, but oh boy. You know, she, she reinvigorates his views on life. Uh, anyway, yeah. Derek, hang in there. Uh, he's got patches on his elbows. Is he a writer? Uh, it, well, sometimes, you know, I mean, he, he, his, his wife doesn't encourage him as much as she should. Anyway. <laughs> that is just classic for college professor wives in novels. I'm telling you, man. Uh, so, you know. If uh, only they if understood you, why he had to have sex with his 19-year-old student. Yeah, no, it really it really lays the foundation. So, you know. <laughs> and the student. I, uh, what the hell, Oliver? Anyway, so my point is, I would, um, even if you wrote that, right? Even if you wrote, like, mm-hmm. what I've just made fun of, the most quotidian uh word of the day yeah quotidian. Uh, <laughs> uh friggin uh novel i would still be like i, I gotta read this because <laughs> i gotta see what what ryan what's he's here. doing with it what is he doing even, with even, it? Yeah. even if he's not reinventing the the tired college professor just wants to get laid story i don't know even if the execution was totally mundane i'd still look at it like a, like it was an andy kaufman joker and be like what, <laughs> done? what am i missing <laughs> uh, that um, is a compliment thank you yeah, yeah, no, for sure. No, um, that brings me to my more ambitious last 
question or two here. Mm-hmm. Uh, not that I, not the, not, I mean, these other questions I did were fine, um, like the, <laughs> like the fine. novel. Um, but, like the celebrated uh, but yeah, I, I don't mind sharing the novel. <laughs> I don't, I don't mind sharing uh, with you, listener, um, something I shared with Ryan a little before we got talking, which is that I actually weirdly got kind of nervous about doing this interview last night. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this morning, I, I got a bit better, but yeah, because I felt this huge pressure I put on myself to like, make the most profound questions possible because, you know, how many interviewers will have known Ryan since we were eating lunch in the hallway in high school, you know, how many other, you know, blah, 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 blah. I felt like I had to work this personal connection to like say something deeply profound. And I definitely had some misfires that are not being included <laughs> in this interview. <laughs> um, but I've got two, maybe I'll even cut the last one, but I've definitely got at least one here. I'm going to, I'm going to swing and, and maybe miss or maybe get us to somewhere more interesting uh, or not even more interesting. Like I just said, I love everything Ryan said and I just put an unnecessary value judgment on the interview. It was fine. Um, anyway, you can tell I'm nervous. I am uh, already. Now a <laughs> question, so let's just get into it. Shut up, Oliver. So this is a bit of a preamble. Uh, two volumes of Machine of Death. Yes. Two choosable adventure books, two separate comic book finales featuring fairly I won't say which ones because I don't want to spoil, but featuring fairly literal Deus Ex Machina moments, uh, tackling Billy Pilgrim's journey in the Slaughterhouse Five graphic novel adaptation, uh, arguably the conceit of how to invent everything, and now this wonderful new book all about how to be a supervillain, someone who's all about imposing their will upon the world, or even mm-hmm. when you get up to the real heavy hitters like Thanos, all of reality. Right. Lots of writers grapple with themes of fate and feelings of having no control over your life or seeking total control. But I feel like it's pretty prominent in your work, in particular. Ryan, do you have trouble accepting the things you can't change and finding the courage? <laughs> <laughs> I love an interviewer who can't get through their own question without laughing. <laughs> yeah, no, it's always good. <laughs> oh my god, CBC, I'm 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 here, baby. I'm ready to do some work for you. Um, <laughs> the Canadian Go ahead, finish the question, question, say it. But yeah, I I just honestly do wonder what what. How, <laughs> <laughs> why, 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 you know, why, why do you think maybe um, that is so prominent in your work and does it tie into anything to do with your like life experiences and philosophy? Why the serenity why? prayer of God give you yeah. the. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, not the. I see. This is why you don't start making fun of yourself and you don't have a question and then break up laughing. It's, it makes it more confusing. That's my little interviewer tip for today. What I'm saying is, it feels like these themes are pretty intense in your work. And so it makes me wonder um, maybe why that is, or if it's something you've ever thought consciously about. Uh, and if it, and, you know, just in your life, do you find yourself maybe wrestling sometimes more with, you know, the co- concepts of fate and control over your life? Um, one, I'll, I'll start this answer with a story, which is always what a good author does. Um, <clears throat> When I was asked to write the adaptation of Slaughterhouse-Five, it's obviously a very exciting and also very terrifying thing to do because I love Kurt Vonnegut so much. And it was interesting because I had already adapted Shakespeare's work twice with Romeo and or Juliet and To Be or Not To Be. And Shakespeare is obviously has gone from being seen as a good author to being seen as a great author to be seen as the best possible author in the english language to being seen as the best possible author in all languages across all time how dare you desecrate the bard sort of stuff and i was super down to play with shakespeare and turn him into a choosable path adventure just like make fun of him in places because he's 400 years out of date and you'd think that would make me ready to yeah so if I can do that to Shakespeare, who's Vonnegut? The guy's just one author. Like he's he's not he's not as celebrated as, as William Shakespeare, my co-writer Bill. But what 
what made it so scary was that I do really respect Vonnegut in the way that I don't for Shakespeare because there's stuff Vonnegut has written that sort of like just opens up your core and puts those words inside and then closes the core again. And one of them is where Vonnegut's talking about what he knows about life and he boils it down to God damn it, babies, you've got to be kind. And it's this experience of reading that and saying, yes, truth, got it, done. (laughs) This is now tattooed on my brain. And what I like about it is that it answers a lot of questions. Like I remember being in university and being like, what does a a life well-lived look like? And deciding at some point that I don't know the answer to that. I don't know how to make the world a better place given the tools that I've got. But by writing, I can maybe inspire someone else or give them the tools or at least distract them happily for a little while and then they can go out and do good so it's saying i don't know the meaning of life but i know that if i can help you for a little bit maybe you'll figure it out and i decided i was fine with that like this that seems like a reasonable way to live a life and the god damn it babies you've got to be kind line describes what you can be doing in the other periods of time when you're not writing so in my work a lot of the uh, core of the characters is this kindness. I think you can see it absolutely in Squirrel Girl. You can see it, I think, in both How to Admit Everything and How to Take Over the World, this idea of with thought and with intention and with cleverness, science and technology, you can accomplish things you couldn't accomplish otherwise. And these can be put towards kind ends. Um, so that's kind of an impromptu monologue <laughs> about no, the, that was a, the nature that was of life, but that's answer. where I'm coming from. Yeah, no, that was a wonderful answer. And it also, it gives, you know, A, it gives, I think, anybody who heard it an idea of where you sit on notions of what makes a life we're living in pain, destiny, all that stuff, uh, free will versus predetermination, whatever. Like, you yeah, just, that, that you never just interests me. Like, the free will, destiny. Like, this is the thing. Like, there's people who will blow their mind and say, you know, what if the world's a simulation? What if put all in cube on someone's desk? What if the world came into existence 10 seconds ago and we all have memories that paper that over? And it's like, yeah, cool. It has it's untestable and it yeah. doesn't change the world we're in right now. So it can be so easily dismissed because if it's true, it changes nothing, and if it's untrue, it changes nothing, and we don't know which one is which. So those those sort of big whoa dude questions of I've always been like, why are we talking about this? It's untestable. It has no effect. So for that, like free will versus predestination, you can't test it. It doesn't change how you feel. It doesn't impact your day-to-day life unless you go into the full extreme of, you know, these aren't my choices so I can do whatever I want, onanism, solipsism stuff. So for me, those questions have always been like, well, you know, who cares? It doesn't change anything. (laughs) We still have to live in the world as we perceive it. So goddammit, babies, you've got to be kind. Like it it boils down to that uh, more often than not. No, perfect. And uh, yeah, so I guess maybe also like the reason a lot of your works feature... uh, you know, things to do with fate and predetermination and big gods doing big, crazy things. It's also just you work a lot of fantastic uh, genres. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think it's a good answer. Um, and uh, it's fine. Uh, and, uh, yeah, no, I think I re- and one of the things I also really like is uh, you actually unintentionally, um, this is how great Ryan is, everybody, uh, you just unintentionally did me a kindness. Oh, proceed, please, yes. Because uh, you just you just did it by accident. Because my last question that I, that I sort of discussed with you beforehand, because that's how nervous I was, listener, I was like, this question <laughs> works. Never run it by him, I don't know. It was kind of rambly. It started with an anecdote about Ryan and I watching a movie. It was completely unnecessary. And, and then I realized, like, actually all I was trying to do was get to saying something to you, the uh, listener, that I think more people should know about Ryan and his work, these 
books you can buy for money. Very um, smooth. Yes. Yeah, no, I've worked it in there real easy. Uh, is that I think at the core of a lot of your work, as you've just said, uh, for example, Squirrel Girl, although I gather some of that came from the editor, so that's interesting, mm -hmm. uh, is, uh, <laughs> is there's this core of empathy and kindness and decency, and we're going to solve some problems and help each other out in the in, along the way. You know, this mm -hmm. book is about supervillainy, which, as you know, you mentioned, even in cartoonish supervillainy is fundamentally a selfish, greedy, terrible thing. Um, but your voice in your introduction to it, well, like, I started to feel pumped after I read it. I was like, I'm going to go build a secret <laughs> base. Like, you know, yeah, yeah. It, it, yeah, it's like, it's very like, you are good. <laughs> it's like, it's, it, which is a funny thing to say to someone who is trying to do bad. Um, but I think that, uh, yeah, I think what you're, you know, but it works beautifully. Uh, and I think this empathy and kindness and let's solve things together, you know, and work together uh, thing. Is uh, it's at the core of your writing because it's at the core of who you are, and it's a big part of what makes you a pleasure to know as well as your work a pleasure to read. So, listener, if you're one of the people coming across this who has never encountered Ryan before, you've enjoyed this interview, and you're like, I don't know, I'll read his book though. Uh, trust me, um, do it, uh, do it because um, whatever the subject matter, even if you're like, I don't read popular science books or I don't know about squirrels who are also girls, I don't know. Um, you, you know, I assume you are probably into uh, kindness and empathy and helping others out and feeling like you're having spending time with someone who shares those really nice values when you're reading their voice on the room. So yeah, uh, I swapped out my, my big nervous weird question with uh, just saying something really nice about my buddy. That's really nice. Thank you. And uh, endorsing the hell out of his books. And I'm, I like that a lot more. That's really pleasant. <laughs> uh, that's great. Thank you. So uh, let's do the, the K Fabe question at the end of all podcasts. Could you sure. please tell us again when the book comes out and how best oh, yes. to buy it? Where should people yes. look for you online? Uh, when can people buy your NFT? Uh, any clues as to no. what else uh, you're coming down the pike? <laughs> uh, he yes, thank you. Thank you, Oliver. Um, my new book, How to Take Over the World, Practical Schemes and Scientific Solutions to the Aspiring Supervillain, comes out March 15th, The Ides of March. And it, you can get it. You can pre-order it right now. You can get it wherever books are sold. And there's a website for the book I made called supervillainbook.com. And if you'd like to uh, see me on social media, I'm really mainly, mainly only active on Twitter, where it's uh, at Ryan Q North. And there I will post usually jokes and sometimes asking you to buy my book. <laughs> <laughs> you have but a there's a human there. Yeah, no, you have a good rhythm, I think, with that, actually. I, I know I try with promoting the podcast. I'm like, okay, if I'm going to tweet first thing in the morning, like, go listen to the new episode, I have to share at least two other things between then and when I, like, so, so, well, you know, it's so so an arbitrary number, but, you know, I want to share at least one or two yeah. interesting things between then and when I talk about it the next day. You don't want to just you know? be a robot. Um, yeah. I, I, one of the things I like about Twitter for the past couple of years is I have been um, denying that I'm D.B. Cooper, famed yes. handsome hijacker. And most people get the joke because he did his crime in 1977, or so I've read, and I wasn't born until 1980, so there's no way I could be D.B. Cooper. But there's occasionally someone who's like, who takes it very seriously. He's like, this is of course you're not D.B. Cooper. You weren't even alive. And I'm like, this is why I'm saying there's many other more viable suspects. Let's all stop looking at me. There's no reason to suspect that I am the handsome, only successful act of piracy in U.S. history. That's D.B. Cooper. I'm not him. I'm just saying, I'm not him, so let's all stop asking me about it. It's fun. Yeah, well, there you go, right? <laughs> You're playing with Twitter uh, and, and the, the, you know, the forms of that as much as anything else. Yeah, um, Yeah. okay, so uh, this should go up before the 15th, but of course you could be hearing this afterward. Uh, so if all else fails, you can always go to Ryan's website, which is... RyanNorth.ca. Ryan yeah. 
Sorry, that was my uh, dog shaking. Sure. RyanNorth.ca. <laughs> Uh, and uh, I will link to all kinds of things that we've mentioned in the show notes so they're easy to find, including his Twitter and uh, all that good stuff. So, yeah, this was super fun, Ryan, and it was nice to get to hang out with you. Always a pleasure, Oliver. Let's do it again next time I have a new book out. Let's do it. <laughs> <All right. laughs> so I'm Writing a Novel features original music by Gloria Guns and is hosted by yours truly, Oliver Brackenbury. If you'd like to submit a question, then please email it to so I'm writing a novel at gmail.com. Bonus points if you record yourself and send me an mp3 I can cut into the show. Doesn't have to be fancy, using your phone is fine. Just keep it clear and concise. You can also holler at the show on Twitter. Look for at so underscore writing, at so writing. Please consider sharing the show with anybody who might like it, leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, and checking out patreon.com slash so I'm writing a novel. Patrons get to be thanked in the final novel, listen to episodes of the podcast a week early, and even enjoy a bonus podcast called So I Wrote a Novel, where I read and comment on chapters of previous works, starting with my first novel, Junkyard Leopard. Thanks for hanging out with me, and Ryan, and I'll see you soon. <laughs>